Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. Every other Thursday we feature just one classic story from the vaults. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, a story that Jill Heinerth first shared on the show in October of 2019. Here's Jill now with a story we call Stepping into the Darkness. I'm a cave diving explorer. Now, that's pretty abstract to most people. They can't even envision that there are water-filled tunnels and spaces beneath their feet. My job is to go explore those places and to go to places where nobody has ever been before. Places that are completely void of light. Places where I have to run a thin nylon guideline and squeeze through unimaginably small spaces to get to the next giant cavernous void where I can explore and see things that are beyond your imagination. Caves are museums of natural history. These underwater caves contain evidence about global climate change. They have the remains of civilizations that are no longer on this planet. And even the bones of literal 
you know, dinosaurs, you know, creatures that no longer roam on this planet. And I have an opportunity to literally touch the void and to go to these places that would terrify most people. And for most people, it would seem like a claustrophobic nightmare to even go inside these places where I have to rely on life support to supply my next sustaining breath. Most people call me fearless, and they think that I'm really brave for swimming through these spaces, but the truth is that I didn't learn how to face fear from going into these dark, unforgiving caves. I actually learned to face fear in another completely different experience in my life. As a young woman in university, in my third year, I moved away from campus housing to a house, and I was planning on moving in there with four other women from school. It wasn't in a great neighborhood. I mean, most students aren't able to afford a great neighborhood. In fact, at the time, the neighborhood was called the jungle. It was kind of lawless, one of the least safe places to live in the city of Toronto. But it was cheap. We could afford it. So I was the first one to move in. I had borrowed my mother's car and ferried my things from the university dorm into this two-story walk-up on a busy street in Toronto. I was going to live in the second-floor bedroom overlooking this busy street. After I borrowed my mom's car and done all the moving, I was kind of excited to stay the first night in the house. The girls hadn't moved in yet. I had the only key. So I had a chance to really settle in, put in the kitchen things and and get my bedroom kind of decorated. It was it was rough. I mean, even in the bathroom, there were cracks in the tile where large army ants were crawling in and out of these holes. And they seemed to be pitching these large chunks of plaster into the bathtub every time I turned around. My room, I don't know, it might have been an attic at some point. It might have been an apartment. There was a, there was a big counter in there with a, a sink and um, creaky wooden floor. And it was perfect for me, an artist. I could set up my drafting table and my bed and this bookshelf that I'd made like every other college kid does with a couple of bricks and a few planks of wood. My textbooks on. I had a few posters on the wall. I think I remember Pink Floyd the wall (laughs) on the wall. Not much in terms of decor, but it was going to work. And it wasn't too far from the uh, subway station, just a few blocks away. I've faced a lot of really scary situations as a cave diver. I've been inside an iceberg in Antarctica, trapped because the flow picked up and was so strong that we were fighting our way to get out. I've dived underneath the Sahara Desert, underneath the Ural Mountains in Siberia, in places that would terrify most people. But one of my closest calls was in a very small cave when I guided a scientist into a place that's about equivalent 
to slithering underneath the kitchen chair in your house. In fact, it's even shorter. It's only a little bit taller than my helmet in places. And we had to pass through this small space in order to get a critical sample for her work. I guided her through two restrictions, places that are so tight that you're squirming in between the rock, literally scraping your shoulders against the ceiling with clay mud on the floor. The third restriction was the smallest, and we made it through okay and got our sample work done. But when we turned around, something happened. She snagged our guideline, that thin nylon rope that leads us all the way to safety. And in turning around, the visibility was obliterated from the silt. She'd stirred it up with her fins and even just trying to rotate in place. It was inevitable. I was expecting to not be able to see, and I already had my hand around the guideline. But now I had my hand on her ankle, and she was moving the wrong way, away from the guideline. I guess she'd lost contact and gotten entangled in some old lines that were buried in the silt beneath the floor. And as she moved laterally, I was stretching my arm, and she was getting further and further away from the guideline. I'm holding on to the guideline. It's getting tauter and tauter. I'm holding on to her ankle with my left hand. And then suddenly I feel it. Ping. The guideline broke. So the first night, I climbed into bed, my mattress on the floor and a big heavy comforter wrapped around me for comfort. And it was home. I was really cozy. But in the middle of the night, I woke up. It started. I had heard this bang or something downstairs. I wasn't sure. You know, was it, was it a dream? Was it, I don't know. I just, I woke up and I sat straight up in bed. And then it slowly came to me that there was someone in the house. I had the only key. So who could it be that was now rifling through the drawers in the kitchen downstairs? I would hear the creak of the drawer open and even this person fingering through the cutlery. It was creepy. I thought, oh my God. Is it our landlord? Is he he snooping around because there's no car in the driveway? What the hell is going on? I didn't even have a phone connected. I couldn't even jump out the window of the second story for fear that I'd land right in traffic. Not to mention the fact that the window seemed to be completely painted shut. My first reaction was natural, like anyone would do. I I pulled that comforter right up over my head and thought I'll hide. As soon as he sees that there's somebody home, he'll run away. This guy has no fear. He's walking around downstairs and just going through every room, every door, every drawer in this creaky old house. I was forced into a situation where I had to make a choice, like hide, and God knows what would happen, or or do something. Now I'm holding the bitter end of a guideline in my hand. It's 
broken. I'm in zero visibility. My dive buddy is attached to me, my left hand grabbing onto her body as she's now panicking. She's that person beneath the comforter in that bedroom space in my house, panicking beneath the covers, trying to figure out what to do next. And I'm yelling, don't panic, just breathe, hold on. And we're in a crisis. She is the cork in the bottle containing my life. And if I can't get her to calm down and get her back into a space that she can fit in, we're both gonna die in this water-filled cave beneath your feet. In my head, the chattering monkeys wanted to start. Literally, your emotions want to take control. Your heart wants to race. Your breathing wants to go out of control. But there's no room for that when the shit hits the fan. So I kept concentrating on her and on patching that guideline. And eventually, I had to let go of her and fix our line, tie into it, and help her reorient herself back out of the cave. At some point, she was facing me. I was tied into the guideline with a reel, trying to reorient her back to face the exit, and then I lost her in the silt. Now it was just me I had to worry about. But I couldn't leave her behind. She's my diving partner. That's a pledge we make, not just for self-rescue, but to rescue our partner. So I chose to retreat back into the cave, further into that tiny, squeezy space, until I was certain I was not leaving her behind. I didn't want to use my voice. I didn't want him to know that I was a woman. I was terrified about what would come next. But I threw off that comforter and I got up and I started first gingerly walking around. I thought if he could hear the creaks of my feet on that rugged wooden floor that he would realize someone was upstairs and he would leave. But this man had no fear. He had no fear. I walked with heavier and heavier footsteps until I was stomping on the floor, thinking, listen, um, there's someone upstairs. Get out, get out. But he didn't. He kept snooping around the house until I realized he was now coming up the stairs, one creaky wooden step at a time. The only thing separating me from him was now this corrugated accordion style like sliding door that had probably been built in the 60s. It hung on this fragile track and he was on the other side. Outside my door there was a closet, another bedroom, and a bathroom. And he methodically chose to search through each of those places first. First, he was in Debbie's bedroom. She hadn't even moved in yet, but I could hear him creeping around. 
Then he moved to my closet, closet outside that accordion door. I could hear him step inside. Do you know that the sound of metal coat hangers on a steel rod just sounds like fingers on a chalkboard? He was scraping one hanger at a time along this rod and searching through the fabric of my clothing. What was he looking for? Was he trying to build a picture of the woman on the other side of the door? How big was I? I was a woman. There were dresses hanging in there, and he was going through each one of them. When he was done with the closet, he moved to the bathroom. I actually heard him rustle the shower curtain, open the medicine cabinet above the sink, and then even carefully lift the lid off the porcelain toilet, scraping that porcelain along the toilet tank. It, it was terrifying. That scratching sound still creeps me out today. What was he looking for? And then it was a standoff. Me inside the bedroom, absolutely trembling with fear. My heart beating so hard, I thought it would leap outside of my chest. And him on the other side of this fragile accordion door. I could actually see that his head was taller than the little gap at the top of the hanging door. And me... I had grabbed X-Acto knives off my drafting table, locked them inside my fingers, and crouched down into a fetal position in the corner, just panting. I was so sure he could hear my heart and certain he would hear my breathing. It was terrifying. I could smell his sweat. It was like street and rage all mixed together. Why was he doing this to me? In cave diving, when we're looking for someone and we've lost the visibility, we go further into the cave until we hit clear water. Because once you hit clear water, you know nobody has been there. And I did just that. And then on my way out, I started to search methodically patching that guideline until it was continuous back to the entrance and looking for her in every nook and cranny on the ceiling, feeling in places where I couldn't see. Now one of my regulators, my breathing apparatus, is totally full of clay and it's now malfunctioning and just spewing air. The only way to breathe from that tank was to turn on the tank valve every time I had to breathe and turn it off in between breaths so I didn't waste gas. I was wearing two tanks, one on each side, but I chose to use that malfunctioning tank first. I wanted to save the good one in case I ran into my partner. She might need gas too, and I needed to save every breath. And then the moment of reckoning came. He literally ripped that accordion door right out of the track and came into my room. 
I turned on the drafting table light and I flashed it straight into his eyes and yelled, Who are you? I thought, my God, is this the landlord? Like, who could it possibly be? And then he came after me. And I had a choice. I could let happen whatever would happen, or I could defend myself. I had already considered throwing one of the bricks from my bookshelf at him, but if I threw a brick, it would be his to beat me with. So I lunged at him with these two exacto knives and swiped with my right hand right across his chest, screaming the whole way. I saw his enraged eyes. I saw his dilated pupils. I saw his face dripping with sweat. And I ripped down the front of his chest. I don't know whether it was fabric or flesh that I felt in the resistance of these sharp blades, but he jumped back in shock, looked down at his chest, and then up at me, and he laughed. It was like a horror movie come true. He laughed. And then he stopped. He took a second look at me, stepped backwards, turned around, and slowly walked out of my room. It was a methodical search, step by step, through the blackness, until... In a side passage, I saw some of her scientific gear discarded. I had to search there too. It was terrifying. Was she dead? Had she run out of gas? Did she make it to the exit? At that point, I didn't know. I just needed to know that I had to make every effort to save us both. I fell back onto the floor, just shaking, terrified, crying, sweating. It was like every pore in my body just opened up. And he just walked out of my room. And I thought, down the stairs. But I wasn't certain. Slowly, I looked over at my alarm clock and saw the numbers flipping over. It was about 2 a.m. I needed to get out of the house. I needed to get to the closest place of comfort that I could get to. To me, that seemed like it would be that subway station down the street. But first I had to escape the house. And I wasn't sure he was gone. I got up, again choosing to face that fear. And room by room, closet, bathroom... Debbie's bedroom, the stairs, and then a run right out the front door and down the road all the way to that subway station in my pajamas. I smashed on that front door, exacto knives in hand, until somebody let me in and called the police. But I couldn't even speak until the police got there. And so methodically, I continued my search all the way out of the cave. Finally, coming around that last corner, while my heart was filling with dread because I hadn't found her, there she was in the entrance. She'd found her way 
out. She had surfaced and called an emergency and come back down to wait for me. Wait for me so that I knew as soon as possible that she'd made it. But to my friends, to those people coming to that emergency call, I'd already been dead to them for 73 minutes. And that's an eternity to your friends. In the cave diving community, when somebody is overdue from a cave dive, we think the worst. We're literally responding to a potential body recovery, and that's exactly what was happening. It was a sobering experience. Some of my friends wrote emails and letters, things that they might have said at my eulogy at my funeral. And that causes one to reflect on what they do. I survived my face off with that intruder that night, but I carried that fear with me for years, waking up in the middle of the night in a terror once again, until I decided that I could choose a different future. I couldn't change what happened that night. I could only change what I did moving forward. And that choice to move forward and to really understand how to embrace fear helped inform me as a cave diver in one of the most dangerous things that you could possibly do. But for me, cave diving is important. The science is important. What we were doing inside that cave that day was important. Being inside the largest iceberg in recorded history is important to understand climate change. Mapping and surveying where these water conduits lay beneath our feet is important science. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I'm not just out there for thrills. I'm out there because I think that what I do means something, means something to, you know, understanding our water resources, understanding civilizations like the Mayans that are no longer with us, that have left their remains in these caves. This, to me, is important. And it's important to me to learn about how to deal with this fear so that I can be successful when the worst possible thing happens. These giant problems like getting out of a cave or surviving a burglar can seem all too much. We don't know how it's all going to end. But we know what the next best possible step forward is in life. And sometimes that means stepping into the darkness. That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.